you know, so much of the conversation in our industry is about, are we going back to the office? Are we going back to the way things were before the pandemic? Of course, I'm a big believer in going back to the office and doing things in person, building those relationships. But it would be a mistake not to also reflect on what are the things that we've learned over the last year and a half. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Sam Shandon, who leads the Shack Institute of Real Estate at NYU, which is the largest graduate and also now undergraduate real estate program in the world. This is our first annual back to school episode. Sam and I talk about the value of real estate education and training for the future leaders of our business as our real estate industry addresses increasingly complex issues around climate change, urbanization in our major cities, and now what used to be called secondary cities, social equity issues, diversity in our business, and now with the continued hills and valleys of COVID, public health. This was a really wide-ranging conversation. Thank you to our sponsor, Terra Search Partners, As recruiters in the real estate business, we're always thinking of the skill sets, experiences, and sensibilities of that next generation of leaders in the business. So this is a particularly apt conversation. I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices. If so, please follow us on your favorite podcast app, and please share this and other favorite episodes with a friend, especially this one with someone in their 20s considering a grad school degree. And as always, feel free to email me at matt at with comments, questions, or guest suggestions. Enjoy the conversation with Sam. So, Sam Shandon, welcome to Leading Voices. I am really pleased to have you as a guest. And we are taping on August 25th for what I'm going to call our back-to-school episode. Leading Voices is so much about imagining career paths for young people getting into the real estate business. That's one of my themes on the show so you, running the Shack Institute at NYU, get to talk about students and what they're interested in, why they're coming into real estate, and why they're not coming into real estate. So we have a lot to talk about that, plus your research. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. Absolutely, we'll call it the, the back-to-school episode. I am in full-on back-to-school mode right now. We're really, really thrilled. I mean, we've made moves over the last couple of semesters to open up campus, bring students back in larger numbers. There have been some bumps in the road, particularly as it relates to some of our non-U.S. students. We have a very robust and dynamic international student population. Mm -hmm. Like other universities, not everyone's been able to get you know, their visa in time for the beginning of the semester. But we are currently in the midst of welcoming people back. We're being careful. We've got all the protocols in place. But it is just so exciting to see so many people back on campus and for us to be planning for doing things in person once again this fall. That was totally true. And I think of my daughter just graduated from city planning at Berkeley. So she just got her master's and three of four semesters were online. She didn't get to see her team. And I think so much of a degree is the network that you create, so therefore the relationships you create. So pretty hard to do without that. Yeah, well, first, congratulations to your daughter. That is a really fantastic program. Your real estate is one of those industries that I think all of your listeners are going to agree it was so relationship based. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the network is so critically important. And one of our natural advantages at Shack is that we're in the middle of New York City and we have access to this extraordinary network. We also have students, uh, particularly the students that have been on our one year accelerated track. 
they are able to complete their master's degree in 12 months by uh, taking intensives during the January semester, during the summer term. Some of those students may have not spent time on campus uh, while they were a graduate student. As soon as we went remote in March of 2020, realizing that this would be one of our primary challenges. We already had considerable experience in online teaching because of many of our certificate and global programs, but ensuring that students had access to an extraordinary network, even if it was the case that they were accessing that network online, was really, really important to us. So we really ran the gamut between sort of events where you would be able to tune in for a panel alongside 1,200, 1,500 other people to hear what Hamid Mogadam or Sam Zell or Debbie Kafaro, you know, their, their prognostications on them are just an amazing, <laughs> amazing group of people. But at the same time, we hosted a program called Executive in Residence, where we would specifically pair an executive CEO, very often one of our board members at the Shack Institute, with a group of five or six or seven students. So students were able to hear in these very large venues, albeit online, from you know, the, the biggest names in the industry. But many of those people would come back and then talk to and engage with our students and again, a group of five or six. And that really provided a nice counterbalance because it gives students the opportunity to engage with an industry leader in a much more intimate setting. So doing this full range of activities, ensuring that students had access to an extraordinary range of opportunities has been absolutely critical for us. That's fantastic. And you're so lucky to be in New York because you are ground zero for half of what we do in the industry, I think. So one of the things we're evaluating now, when I look at our fall schedule, mm -hmm. uh, we have a program in September that's focused on 20 years of rebuilding and resilience in lower Manhattan. Larry Silverstein founded the Shack Institute in 1967. So we have a very special connection to lower Manhattan. But we also will have our fourth National Women's Leadership Symposium uh, in October that will be returning in person uh, in our 54th annual conference on capital markets. But in each of these cases, and for all of the events uh, that surround sort of these big marquee programs, mm -hmm. I think one of the critical things for us has been to evaluate what are the lessons that we learned over the last year? You know, so much of the conversation in our industry is about, are we going back to the office? Are we going back to the way things were before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm a big believer in going back to the office and doing things in person, building those relationships. But it would be a mistake not to also reflect on what are the things that we've learned over the last year and a half? You know, many of our events will be simulcast. They will be in person, but we also want you know, th that young person in another part of the country, another part of the world that may not have access to one of our conferences or events to be able to participate in some way. Right. So context, talk about, sh I'm, I'm curious about Shaq and what it is and what the different programs are. And you've told me it's the largest real estate graduate school program in the world. So I want to yeah. hear about that. And then I want to go on to kind of your view of overall real estate, higher education, graduate education, what that looks like and contextually broader. But let's start with Shaq. Yeah, no, th thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. Shaq was founded in 1967 by Larry Silverstein and several of his colleagues who were also in leadership roles in the New York City real estate industry. The notion of a master's degree in real estate or an undergraduate degree in real estate, you probably have not caught on uh, mm -hmm. at that point. And so he created Shaq along with these other industry leaders really to provide continuing education opportunities for working professionals in the real estate industry, mm -hmm. uh, which is why 
in part, a decision was made at that very early stage that although the core of NYU's campus is on Washington Square, that you know, Shaq would be right in Midtown. So to this day, our graduate programs and our continuing education and executive education programs are all right on Bryant Park. And the way I describe it to a prospective student is that you know, within 10 blocks, we have the largest concentration of real estate capital anywhere in the world. And that is just an amazing advantage. Over the years, we evolved from primarily a continuing education program that offered individual courses, certificates, to uh, ultimately introducing one of the industries or academia's first uh, master's degrees in real estate. Over the years, that has evolved from a master of science in real estate, which is uh, students have a choice of finance or asset management, to also adding a master of science in real estate development, a master of science in construction management, and most recently introducing a bachelor of science in real estate. So we've grown tremendously. Uh, we have roughly 850 students in degree-granting programs. We also are, are home to, again, sort of, you know, several thousand students participating in continuing and executive education every year. We are home to a number of different research centers, uh, the NYU Urban Lab, which focuses on issues related to cities and the interrelationship between cities, city competitiveness, and the performance of real estate, uh, the NYU REACH Center, the Young Wu Design Lab that is focused on thinking about how we will use space as we look to the future. The Crefsey Center for Commercial Real Estate Finance. This is one of the uh, accomplishments I'm most proud of during my time at Shack. We uh, received a significant endowment gift from the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council to create a new interdisciplinary center uh, mm -hmm. that would work closely with Crefsey uh, to provide an academic dimension to their work. And so the Crefsey Center is home to our Crefsey scholars, our industry fellows, a robust research agenda, a certificate program for Crefsey members. I could go on. Suffice it to say, between the conferences, the centers, the students, it is an extraordinarily vibrant community of people and really one of the real estate industry's anchors in, in global academia. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because through the period of time since you were founded, real estate has become institutionalized. It's one of the themes yeah. of my podcast and themes of the work that I do when I think about this, and that real estate has moved from just a collection of assets to business platforms, business culture, business technologies. And the platform, I think, has almost equal weight to a bunch of assets and a bunch of deals. So we're very different business, and it's become professionalized, using other words as well. So as the industry's evolved, it feels like you've been there to evolve with it. And I'm wondering how young people see real estate as a profession to go into and how that may have evolved along with that as well. I, I think it's evolved tremendously, uh, as you point out. And I don't have a firsthand account. Uh, for, you didn't watch this happen. This. <laughs> I did not watch it happen. Shaq was founded uh, many years before I came into the world. If we were to look at the early curriculum mm -hmm. uh, from the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, I think what we'd see there is that you know the curriculum, the type of coursework would reflect exactly that industry that you're describing that was early in the process of institutionalizing. Mm -hmm. Courses may have been primarily focused on negotiations, dispute resolutions, leasing, your know, property operations, the capital markets aspects of it, 
the robust equity platform education, the data analytics, which is relatively more recent. These are later evolutions, but I think it's not only reflected in a change and an evolution in the courses we offer. And I should say we still offer, we have a very, very popular course in negotiations and dispute resolution. But apart from introducing coursework that covers you know, the broader range of foundational skills that we think are critical for every early career professional in the real estate industry, the ethos has also evolved as the industry has changed. And so there is a more institutional character to how we think about the built environment, how we think about real estate as a platform. Um, It's also reflected in our student body. About 40% of our graduate students uh, are from abroad. They join us from China, India, Canada, the UK, Germany, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, just an incredibly dynamic community of international students that you know, bring a range of experiences and backgrounds uh, to, to our programs. A key priority for me in the six years that I've been at Chac has been to enhance the uh, diversity and inclusiveness of our student pipeline. And so we also see that as we have focused a lot of our energy on highlighting for prospective real estate students or or young people that maybe hadn't even thought about a career in real estate, that it doesn't matter what your background is, where you grew up, where you went to high school, whether you're from a real estate family or not, we can help you forge a, a career path in this industry and equip you with the skills, the tools, the knowledge, and the network that you need to be a successful real estate professional. We've been working very hard uh, to then uh, diversify our student population and have been really thrilled over the last couple of years to see it become a more important priority for the industry as uh, employers are thinking about their own uh, recruitment strategies out of undergrad and out of graduate schools. Hmm. And you use the word ethos, so it comes to another point. The, the last two episodes of Leading Voices, the month of August episodes before the back to school episode, were both on the environment and the role of real estate around carbon emissions and sustainability. And so I'm wondering when you think of ethos, what also, and we think of the built environment responsibility around that stuff, social equity, uh, affordable housing, rebuilding our cities, building great cities. So what does that ethos mean there? What's the connection between your young people and goals for that plus goals for commerce, which coexist really well, I hope, and maybe differences around the world. So just kind of talk about that. Yeah, and you know, I should mention when you talk about you know sustainability uh, and environmental issues as it relates to the built environment, one of the centers that we are home to that I didn't mention uh, initially uh, was uh, the Center for the Sustainable Built Environment, mm-hmm. which is one of our uh, oldest and longest standing centers that's focused on issues related to sustainability. So I, I think given the wide uh, range of courses that we offer, the the wide range of research interests of our faculty, that invariably attracts a a broad uh, and diverse student population. Apart from identifiable characteristics and backgrounds, attracts a diverse set of students in terms of uh, their interests in the real estate industry. Many students are attracted to our program because they see these centers, they see the interests of the faculty as reflections of our priorities. It's essential that every single student 
you know, has all of those foundational and technical skills. Everyone you know, needs to be able to do real estate financial modeling. Everyone needs to understand right. cost estimation. But how they express then uh, their interest, how they leverage those tools that we equip them with. Mm-hmm. They, when they look at the faculty, my own interests are in a range of different areas that have evolved over time. Cities and equity in cities and issues related to affordable housing, workforce housing, you know, are, are one of my areas of research. Another is urban epidemiology. And uh, right now, a lot of my focus is on how it is that real estate and cities prepare for, uh, respond to novel public health threats or novel public health shocks, uh, as we've seen during the pandemic. Uh, And I firmly believe that over the course of the next several years, we will start to see institutional investors thinking about public health as relates to real estate in much the same way that they are always carefully thinking about issues related to climate change and how that affects their investment uh, decisions. Let's come back to your work in epidemiology and urban epidemiology. I'm really curious about that, but that's a rabbit hole because we keep talking about that. Just stick a little bit more with kind of this program. Think of it in the context of other programs, not that they're your competitors, they're your collaborators, because together you are creating the next group of leaders in the real estate industry. And then also think about MBA programs, because half of the people I interview are MBAs, not masters in real estate. And then also one level down, because we're also trying to create career paths for people in property management, hotel management, all that stuff. And they're not coming to Shack, but they're going to you know Florida State or something, which may have a program in property management. So how do we create those mindsets towards career path for people to bring them into this industry that it's yeah. continuing to institutionalize? There are a lot of amazing programs out there, including the the program at Florida State. There's certainly a healthy competition for Mm -hmm. the best students uh, across all of the different programs. Your point's well taken on the the decision that a lot of our students have to make about whether or not uh, a Master of Science in Real Estate or an MBA might be the most appropriate path for them. I'm very sensitive to that because prior to coming to Shack six years ago, uh, I've lived my entire academic career on the MBA side of this, depending on sort of where the student is, what they want to get out of the experience, you know, different types of programs are going to offer different benefits and be attractive uh, for different reasons. While there is a healthy degree of competition for those students, and some we're also all competing for great faculty, right. there's a tremendous sense of collegiality and cooperation, collaboration amongst faculty and leaders in the academic real estate community. And so I think not a day goes by that I don't trade notes or a Zoom call or an in-person meeting when circumstances allow with the chair of another department or with a faculty member from another institution. One thing I view about what you're doing and what ULI does and our trade associations does is raise the bar for professionalism, raise the bar for the belief and responsibility of real estate in the built environment. That's what we're trying to do in the podcast as well. So talk about the ways in which you're helping to do that, and you also do a podcast, you also do real estate research, you're a big spokesperson in the industry, and maybe it's towards that end, but I'm not sure. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I think one of the first things that we do when new students join us is to emphasize right up front that real estate does not happen in isolation, that while the built environment is all around us and how we experience the world is shaped by the built environment. The built environment in real estate also occur within a larger context. 
They, they occur within the context of the city. They occur within the context of, of the resources uh, that are available to a, a local and national economy. And the way that we design and invest in the built environment has extraordinary implications for the human condition. But when we think about, or when we're making choices about how to zone land, where to build housing, the kinds of uh, you know, federal or local in, um, incentives that we might provide for a workforce or naturally occurring affordable housing, mm-hmm. the way in which we invest in uh, the transportation network and what that means for people's access to uh, economic opportunity and employment opportunities. All of these things have enormous implications for our social outcomes, for social mobility, for equity, for economic efficiency. Right. You don't have to buy into any of the equity arguments. So when I'm thinking about the importance of ensuring that uh, we have an adequate supply of workforce and naturally occurring affordable housing mm-hmm. within major metropolitan areas, the argument I always start with is that if teachers, firemen, policemen, other people who serve the community do not have the opportunity to reside in the communities that they serve, that impacts the long-term economic competitiveness of that city and really emphasizing sort of the bottom line in very much the same way that I think over time, the arguments in favor of green building, for example, have gravitated towards it being a bottom line argument. It's not only the right thing to do, but uh, for the environment, it's the right thing to do for your bottom line Uh, and really emphasizing the interconnectedness of the equity and efficiency issues when Mm -hmm. we're thinking about urban planning, when we're thinking about housing, when we're thinking about real estate, broadly. That is one of the first things that I think we bring to the table in our engagement with our new students and as part of our ongoing uh, dialogue with industry. So uh, it it is absolutely important to us when I think about the work that I do, not as the dean of a real estate program, uh, but as also a faculty member who is actively engaged in research, the issues related to the job market, Uh, tax policy and how that's impacting the competitiveness of cities. All of these things that are sort of the larger context of real estate. How do we think about the interrelationship between public health, public spaces, real estate, how we will ultimately use space? There's so much dialogue in our industry. There's an opportunity for it to be even better informed by people who have a, a background in the overlap between public health issues right. and real estate, but not just one or the other. It's interesting. Real estate's probably the most interdisciplinary business there is. I, I have to agree. And if, so you got to understand all those things. So let's. I'm going to put a pin in this and just go back one, kind of one click to a couple of questions. And this morning, my heart was broken. I read the New York Times, and there was an article about the guys who built the towers in Miami that fell down. And the architect involved and the developer involved, and they knew they were doing a bad job. So I take that article and, you know, this is what the headlines that someone reads about, about our industry. Then at the same time, I think about the word landlord, which is not one of the positive words in our lexicon, but maybe could or should be. And I think about the word developer. And then I think about the word rapacious developer because they go together in our lexicon. So think about those kind of the mashup of those kind of dirty words in the popular lexicon and to think about what we read this morning in the New York Times about these bad guys who built a building and they did a bad job so that people don't have trust in that work that we do. 
And then think about the place that you sit both at Shack and as an economist and as a spokesperson for the industry. I think it's a critical point, and we see this uh, very often at the local level. <laughs> we see it during mayoral elections. We see it when um, incentives and subsidies are being offered to encourage you know, major corporations or companies to locate to a metropolitan area. There is, and often is, a degree of distrust between a subset, a significant subset of citizens, of households, of taxpayers, and uh, the, you know, the, the, the community. Uh, and uh, on one side, and and the real estate industry on the other, does that division, does that mistrust need to be the dominant paradigm? And I don't think it does. Talk about the challenges and opportunities of having that kind of conversation, and ultimately how that didn't work out well for New York City in the Amazon HQ2 negotiations. So when real estate may be pushing hard and your city might be the big winner. You know, New York having been one of the markets that, uh, one of the two that was selected right. uh, as, as a home. And that being really exciting for everyone involved in real estate. It also being a source of very real concern you know, for, for residents. And it's understandable why. You know, we are a city that has infrastructure challenges, that has challenges with the delivery of high-quality public schooling, where you know, property values uh, are rising, where for the income-constrained family mm-hmm. is, doesn't own their home but rents. You know, it's also a market where we see rapid increases in rents, um, undermining affordability. The idea of a big, big new employer coming into town, creating lots of high-paying jobs. From a headline perspective, why wouldn't you want that? And that's where I think having the sensitivity to say, okay, well, how does this impact you know, a broad range of constituents? Mm-hmm. Who are the stakeholders that are impacted by this? Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know, the, the concerns that were brought to the table were regarding what does this do to congestion? What does this do to the demands on our infrastructure and an already overloaded subway system? Uh, what does this mean for strains on our public schools? What does this mean for upward pressure on rents in my neighborhood where I've lived and my family has lived for 30 years, but where you know, continuing investment you know, threatens to displace me and my family and, and require that I move my son or daughter to a different school. Mm-hmm. Those are all very, very real concerns. I think with the benefit of hindsight, one of our lessons learned is to be able to make the case for how the relocation of a major company you know, will, will benefit the market. Uh, but how those benefits will then be reinvested into the community. There probably was not as clear and as loud an articulation as there could have been with the benefit of hindsight of, okay, so the, the new tax dollars, the new jobs, whether it be from you know, the local wage taxes, whether it be from property taxes, how can we think about then allocating funds and resources to address some of the challenges that already exist mm-hmm. and some of the challenges that clearly will be exacerbated by the arrival of a very, very big new anchor player. I really see the kind of thing that can be resolved by greater dialogue and uh, understanding of the impacts of real estate development and investment decisions on a broad range of constituents. I think it's true. I think the issue, it's interesting, two things. One is we keep here, I've heard a lot lately that, hey, things work at the local level, but they don't work at the national level in our politics. So that's comment one. But this is proving that that's not true. Then the second thing is what we said before, which is complex interdisciplinary issues. 
they're really hard in our body politic to deal with because you're dealing with subtleties. So, hey, here's 10 subtleties together. What do you think? We don't know how to digest that anymore. Yeah, your complicated politics are not only at the national level. <laughs> yeah. I will say that, sort of, you know, my Monday morning quarterback uh, assessment of mm -hmm. what went right and wrong with that particular right. corporate decision to come to New York and then ultimately not to in as visible a way. You know, there are lots of different views on what went right and what went wrong. So I, I offer one view on this. I would say that, you know, from an, you know, an urban economist perspective, pitting cities against one another in competition right. for a business headquarters in a way that drives in a partly political dynamic, the uh, offering of uh, ever increasing incentives is not uh, a dynamic that ultimately is in the best interests of cities. We want to see cities collaborate. We want to see them think about how they can compete in ways that ultimately don't undermine their competitiveness. Totally true. Well, and bully for Crystal City, which really needed to be, Crystal City is a is not a blank canvas, but it's a canvas that can be repainted, everyone agrees, and it will be in Northern Virginia where Amazon is going. So let's change the subject a little bit and stick with cities from, and then we're going to talk about you. But so talk about resilient cities and how cities kind of come out of COVID. And then I also want to talk concurrently with those cities that rise up to equal the core cities, because Nashville, Seattle, maybe Seattle's already a core city, but Nashville, Austin, Denver, all these other cities are now very, very viable places. Salt Lake City are growing like wildfire. So kind of talk about each of those together coming out of COVID. Yeah, actually, you know, Salt Lake is actually one of my favorite cities. And Great place. For a long time. Yeah. Uh, and not just because of the city, which is very, very livable. Uh, but visiting friends at the University of Utah and their business school, uh, being able to look out the window and see the mountains. But you know, to your point, I think if you and I were having this conversation with any of our friends in Seattle or Austin or Salt Lake, they would immediately have jumped in and interrupted us uh, and, and said that, what are you talking about? Uh, we are core cities. There's no question of it. The, there are a couple of different things here. I did a study a number of years ago for NAOP, and this was just after or in, from in the later stages of the great financial crisis, focused on uh, the recovery dynamics or the business cycle, real estate dy uh, cycle dynamics of secondary and tertiary markets. So on the equity and the death side, we observe changes in the availability and flow uh, of capital mm -hmm. at different points in the cycle. And part of what motivated this was that although New York City was for many people, you know, the epicenter of the financial crisis. It was also the first city to begin recovering, not necessarily in terms of the underlying fundamentals of the properties, but in terms of, you know, the inflows of capital and having to sort of explain and make sense of the dynamics of where is capital flowing? And why do we sometimes observe that it is not coincident with or uh, reactive to the strength of the underlying fundamentals, but in part relates to scale economies. It was part of this analysis. We have certainly seen during the last year and a half, you know, part of the dialogue in our industry being uh, focused on the relative competitiveness of, of different cities, the notion that we were have been observing a mass exodus from the well-established urban centers like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, DC, Boston, you know, to uh, San Francisco, LA, to sort of this newer set of cities that are typically, if not always, sort of south of New York, uh, but sort of you know, the, the, the Sun Belt markets, everywhere from Florida 
to Salt Lake, Denver, and Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Austin being sort of an absolute superstar performer in in all of this. One of the challenges for economists during the last uh, 18, 19 months has been that the data we've had access to, the reliable, consistent public data sources, Mm -hmm. and even many of the private data sources have either are published with and made available with a significant lag, which uh, makes it difficult for us to be responsive to things that are happening in real time. The real story here is one where your median professional or service worker is still bound to and tied to their job, which has a specific location. They may be going in two days a week or three days a week. They may not know yet. They may have an idea they'll be going in two or three or four days a week instead of every day. But they're still ultimately tied to a geographic location because they're going in less frequently, though. Within the metropolitan area within which they reside, Mm -hmm. there is a broader radius over which they can now optimize. So for example, you know, I go in every day, you know, I'm, I'm in a people facing business in academia. I don't want to do a one and a half hour commute each way every day. I'm going to live, you know, close to my campus. Mm-hmm. If it was the case that, you know, I was only going in two days a week, then I'd say, you know what? I also care about a good quality public school. I care about proximity to a large quiet park. I may be able to optimize my location preference over a larger geographic radius because now my consideration is not only, you know, my, my utility maximization is not only about how I minimize my commute to work. I can do the one and a half hour commute each way totally. if it's only two or three days. So what we see is a larger number of people that are uh, sort of a greater dispersion of the population, you know, across the metropolitan area. But you know, not people moving across the country if they still need to come in, come in a couple of days. Never heard so much noise uh, in our industry as I have about this issue. Exactly where that equilibrium will be, you know, is being driven by many different things, demographics, uh, you know, uh, right. not least amongst them. But the notion that the city is dying it's and that crazy. people are abandoning the urban core is is exactly it's absolutely anecdotal and not based in the evidence. It's so interesting because people want and need. And the answer, okay, urban's dead, those other cities are alive. But it's going to be an and, not an either or, 100%. Although it's really interesting, as you said this, you're reminding me, when I started the podcast three, three and a half years ago, I walked to work every day. And then since COVID, now I walk upstairs every day because I no longer live in the urban core. I live in, in the country, just like I did. I've done exactly what you said. So now I tell everyone, hey, I live in Sonoma, isn't this cool? Versus walking to work in downtown San Francisco. So I'm probably emblematic of that change because being in the office won't be essential to my particular job. And therefore, I'll vote with my feet in terms of how I do that. Well, residents are not abandoning en masse. Mm-hmm. Cities cannot take it for granted that everyone will stay. You have to work to maintain the value proposition and for your residents. And that is so critical because in San Francisco, we've been questioning that, particularly questioning that with, you know, the pain of homelessness, the pain of taxes and the pain of nimbyism. But we have to move on. So all of that to say that we've had to rely over the course of the pandemic uh, to an increasing degree on a range of uh, alternative or novel data sources mm-hmm. you know, uh, from the U.S. Uh, uh, mail forwarding data from the U.S. Postal Service. You know, data from you know, move, United Van Lines or other moving companies, where are people moving to? I think what we see is that while there are certainly cases of folks relocating you know, from New York to Miami, what we also see is that that is not the dominant trend. More often than not, what we see is that, um, and this is really- It's the, a noisy trend, but not the dominant trend. Right, yeah. 
So the last question before we talk about you is you've said two or three times that you have been studying urban epidemiology. And I don't, what does that mean? And what does that mean so, coming out of COVID? I think it is an interdisciplinary sort of undertaking. I have two areas of focus yeah. in my academic life. One is economics and the other is epidemiology and infectious diseases. The Urban epidemiology for me is the overlap of these two otherwise very, very disparate things. Yep. And so you know, where I felt that there was a need to really bridge those two and explore the overlap is that we've had so much dialogue in our industry about everything from the fitness of the Delta variant to sort of, you know, what kind of HVAC systems we should have installed in our buildings. But we, we've undertaken that very, very important conversation in relative isolation as a real estate industry. We're making big, big decisions about the built environment based on so sometimes solely on sort of you know, what we heard on the NBC Nightly News. So to bring some deeper expertise in issues related to epidemiology, to how we think about real estate uh, is this area that I call urban epidemiology. I should say in terms of your know, research output that's intended for a the private industry as opposed to an academic audience, it's also been a very fruitful area for me to sort of mm -hmm. generate some impact. So, you know, one of the things I do is to go through the New England Journal of Medicine, to go through other, you know, uh, journals that would sort of be sort of outside the scope of what I would do as, you know, an economist right. on a typical day, but to say, okay, well, what are the findings from this latest research? What are we seeing in the preprint servers? What are the implications of this research for real estate mm -hmm. that engenders and facilitates a more informed conversation about how we're thinking about real estate and the urban environment than looking at it solely through the lens of a real estate person who's aware of mm -hmm. what's going on sort of in the broader public health context. Mm -hmm. So that is, that's how I define urban epidemiology. And, and so let me pose a question and, and it's a, around the subject. So I'm going to make a bet that the muscles we've gained during COVID may be similar muscles to dealing with climate change, flooding, terrorism, because we have to work together to solve a problem. And I'm thinking that those things that we actually did work together with on this one will prepare us for the next thing, be it another disease or be it another terrorist strike or be it a big flood. Any yeah. thoughts and about I, that? I think, sir, you're coming to this a really critical point that in economics, we would define this as issues related to externalities. Mm -hmm. right? So climate change is about the impact that we each generate from our individual activity, but where that impact, negative or positive, uh, is internalized by everyone else around us. But all of us sort of internalize that, whether it's climate change, uh, whether it's sort of a textbook example of noise or, or pollution, you know, the, in sort of a classic economics textbook, you'll read about sort of, you know, a factory that is polluting a river, um, and then how is that impacting everyone else downstream? Uh, they don't internalize that cost. The choices that we make as individuals and the choices that we make collectively as it relates to our public health, there's an externality mm -hmm. element to this. And so there is a common thread, as you've described, tying many of these different issues together and, and many of those muscles uh, will need to be exercised. I hate to say we're going to exercise them again.
So let's totally change the subject. And how did you get here into this business? What brought you to do this crazy thing that you do? You grew up in Canada. You have about a bunch of degrees, all Ivy. So talk about that. I had no idea. I came to the United States to do my undergrad at Wharton. Mm -hmm. uh, From where? Where did you grow up? From Canada. Canada. I was Big actually country. born in, in the UK, in London, uh-huh. and then as a kid, uh, came to Canada for school, uh, Where? for university, uh, Ottawa, and my okay. family's now in Montreal, Okay, came to the United States for, for undergrad and have essentially remained here, bouncing around sort of uh, the East Coast uh, <laughs> for, for different degrees, as you mentioned. My first opportunity to really work in the real estate industry, as I mentioned, I was doing my dissertation. My chair for my dissertation committee was um, a senior professor in the finance department at Wharton who uh, remains sort of a, just sort of you know, one of my key mentors in life. For one of the papers that I was writing, uh, I needed a data set on apartment rents. And I was looking at the way in which school quality was being capitalized into the value of real estate. Because you know, the idea that public schooling is free, you know, ignores that it's expensive to live near a good quality public school because it gets capitalized. But I wanted to quantify this. Right. So uh, I approached uh, uh, Reese and Lloyd Linford at the time. And I, I need I need this apartment data set for my dissertation. And the folks at Reese were kind enough to make that available. They lured me in. I spent several years as Reese's chief economist. We took the company public. Of course, you know, Reese has subsequently gone through a couple of other lives and is now part of Moody's Analytics. But I was uh, really grateful for the opportunity to be part of that team when we uh, when we went public. And you know, have uh, spent some time with Bob White as the global chief economist at Real Capital Analytics, mm-hmm. uh, have started a couple of companies, uh, but I've always had one foot grounded very, very firmly in academia. You know, have a, have a great team of researchers on the private side where I provide strategic insight into the areas where I want us to grow our research impact, uh, but a really amazing group of people that uh, actually execute on that research uh, in areas related to economic forecasting, uh, various areas of of the real estate industry. We do a lot of stuff on the debt side of the market, Mm -hmm. litigation support, but also urban epidemiology. (laughs) So those are parallel. You do both at the same time. So you do Shaq and you have Shandon Economics. Is that what that? Yeah. And and I think Shandon Economics have got a really fantastic team. They essentially run it and they they actually seem to do it better without me there. uh, Being the dean of Shaq is definitely a 24-7 commitment. I provide sort of strategic insight. I have no day-to-day responsibilities at Shandon. And, and at the end of the day, I love working with students. I, I love working with faculty. I love doing the research. It's uh, not the most lucrative undertaking, but in terms of just how incredibly rewarding it feels to be able to impact policy thinking about how it is that we can improve the lives of people in our communities, whether it be through more efficiency MBS bond pricing or through uh, you know, MRF filters in our office buildings. It's mission driven for me, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than, than than academia. It's where I have the opportunity to impact the world. That's wonderful. I love hearing that. So, talk about you're also the chair and founder of the Real Estate Pride Council. So, this will be a different kind of diversity than we've talked about on the podcast before. But talk about that in the real estate industry. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it briefly. One thing I'm very mindful of is that you know we've uh, tended to silo our thinking in the industry when it has come to issues around diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And we were very focused on, as an industry, how do we improve outcomes you know, at every level of the organization for women entering real estate? I think there's been a greater focus on the experience of people of color over uh, the last year, year and a half. And I think for many of us, it, it's been an area of focus for much longer. 
the larger circumstances of our national and public dialogue and discourse has brought it to a greater degree of prominence uh, over the last year. But when we think about diversity and inclusion, you know, by definition, it's broad. And it's about not identifying individual categories or silos, but how do we think about an approach that embraces diversity and inclusion in the many ways in which it will express itself? Mm-hmm. And very often we miss in you know our DNI conversation in real estate uh, for just as two examples of communities that are that may not come up mm-hmm. in the DNI conversation. Uh, people who are differently abled is an element uh, and an expression of diversity. People who identify as LGBTQ plus are also part of that larger diversity. We've been working very hard to think about how we can create frameworks for developing platforms that are supportive of diversity and inclusion, however it is that it expresses itself. At the same time, in talking to many of my students, what I find is that they have many of the same concerns and worries and anxieties that I had as a student. When I was thinking about, can I be out during the job search? Will it impair my ability to land that dream job? Will it impact the uh, my progress in the company? Does this mean I'm not going to get invited to the golf game, you know, to the ski trip? But that I won't identify you know, a mentor or a champion for myself in the organization because there isn't going to be anyone on the management team who sees me and identifies with me. Irrespective of whatever that dimension of diversity is, these are issues that, it, that everyone faces. A couple of the things that we wanted to do with the Pride Council, one of our basic missions was simply to create visibility. Yeah. That young people who find our website, our Twitter feed, whatever it is, should be able to see there are successful people in the real estate industry that have been out. You can do both. You can be authentic to who you are and still succeed. That in itself is a critical part of our core mission. Uh, the other is to support all the industry associations out there and all the companies out there that may have different affinity groups, but for whom tackling um, and addressing you know, LGBTQ plus uh, inclusivity maybe hasn't been on their radar. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is about engagement with uh, you know, industry associations, with groups that reflect the intersectionality that many of us experience to say, you know, how can we uh, create visibility? How can uh, we create environments that are supportive of uh, diversity and inclusion, uh, given broad and ever-expanding ways in which it expresses itself within our community? It's interesting. You're reminding me of 20 years ago when I started as a recruiter, and I had one of the first gay guys I dealt with as a recruiter. We became really good friends over the years, and um, he was applying for a job And I approached the subject gingerly, but I said, I don't know if you're going to be comfortable or happy in this organization. It was a question I just didn't have an answer to. And we've now moved from, will you be comfortable and happy there? Because you asked the same question for women, you asked the same question for African-Americans. And the industry has become, has to, has, has to, and is only on its pathway to becoming a more comfortable place for everyone besides white guys. It's just and very much like when we engage with folks in thinking about climate change or public health, we see diversity and inclusion and creating an environment that is supportive of and welcoming of people from different backgrounds and experiences and identities as being part of your profit imperative. Yeah, totally true. And it's interesting because if a company doesn't want you, you're not going to go there, but they're lost. 
And once we can start yep. saying that by pounding our chest, then that's a beautiful thing. The last question, always on leading voices in real estate, is your advice to young people getting into the real estate industry? Learn as much as you can. Meet everyone you can. Immerse yourself in it. And you know, keep a very, very open mind. Um, it's fine for your interests, uh, your focus within real estate to evolve over time. Be ready to take some risks. But be smart and you know, learn as much as you can. And all of those things uh, will pay off in the end. Cool. And go to Shaq. Great program. Or another <laughs> program. So many. They're all that you got it. They're all good. There are they are there are all so many fantastic programs out there, including my alma mater. Uh, <laughs> but right now, yes, I am carrying the purple flag for NYU and the Shack Institute. Fair deal. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for being on Leading oh, Voices. Thank you. We'll keep in touch. This has been great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.